This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. To care about climate change, we do not have to be a specific type of person. We only have to be one thing, and we're all that, and that is a human living on planet Earth. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, the podcast where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Anning, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Jamie Ayton and Laura Finch, to explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors from everyday acts of kindness to the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. The name of the Better Samaritan was inspired by a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said, quote, It is not enough to aid the wounded man on the Jericho Road. It is also necessary to work to change the conditions of the road that made robbery possible, end quote. And you can find a link to that sermon in the show notes. Our guest today is Catherine Hayhoe, an atmospheric scientist who studies climate change. Dr. Hayhoe is a scientist, professor, director of the Climate Center, founder and CEO of Atmos Research, and a principal investigator for the Department of Interior. Her work has resulted in over 125 peer-reviewed papers, abstracts, and other publications, and she has led climate impact assessments for numerous American cities, the findings for which have been presented before Congress and used across the country. Together with her husband, Andrew Farley, she wrote A Climate for Change, Global Warming Facts for Faith-Based Decisions. She also gave a TED Talk in 2018 titled, The Most Important Thing You Can Do to Fight Climate Change, Talk About It. So let's talk about it. Uh, Catherine, we're so grateful that you're here with us. Thank you for having me. Yes, and to, to start, could you tell us uh, what is the main issue on your mind right now when it comes to climate change? We've been talking about this as a country for, for decades now. It keeps getting more urgent. Uh, what feels urgent to you in the conversation right now? Well, this might seem like a bit of a strange answer from a scientist who's somebody who studies this issue, but we've been studying it for almost 200 years. We've known since the 1850s that digging up coal at that time and then later oil and natural gas and burning it was producing heat-trapping gases that were wrapping an extra blanket around our planet that we do not need. So at this point in time, in the year 2021, what we most need is action. Mm. And what's standing in the way of that action is not more science education. It's an understanding that this thing is here and now, and it's affecting every single one of us, no matter where we live, no matter how we vote. Climate change is the most politicized issue in the U.S. right now, and it has been for the last decade. But a, a thermometer does not give us a different answer, depending on if we're conservative or liberal or Democrat or Republican. Climate change is here in the window of time to make choices that will determine our future is closing rapidly. So the thing I would most like to see is meaningful action that not only helps to reduce the future impacts of climate change, 
but that also cleans up the air that we and our children breathe, the water that we drink. It helps us better grow the food that we eat here and especially in poor countries. And here in the U.S., we know that clean energy and climate solutions actually grows jobs too. And so, Catherine, as you list some of those challenges that it's not just something in the future, but that's already here, you know, I, I found myself feeling a little overwhelmed, you know, hearing the list of these kind of hurdles and areas in which we need to make changes. What would you say to someone like myself about how can each of us play a part in starting to address these issues? We often feel overwhelmed because we feel like we've been handed this new list of 10 green commandments. Thou shalt always recycle, thou shalt not fly, thou shalt buy energy efficient vehicles and appliances at all times. Our individual actions are not what's going to fix this thing. Even if every single one of us who was already worried about this did everything we could in our lives, we are embedded in a system that must change, a system in which we derive our energy from the same old fossil fuel sources we've been using for hundreds of years instead of the clean, abundant sources that we know how to harness today. And also, and this is very relevant to what you do, a system that is increasingly pushing down the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable, increasing the risks that they face every day, which are also enhanced by the impacts of a changing climate as it loads the weather dice against us, making our hurricanes stronger and our heavy rainfall events more frequent and our heat waves uh, much more dangerous. Well, so so what can we do that makes a difference? Mm-hmm. Using our voice to talk about it, to advocate for change at every level is incredibly important. Talking not about the details of the science, but about what's happening here and now, how it affects us and things that we care about, and what are solutions that are already happening today in terms of not just choices we can make in our individual lives, but cities like Houston that have set a carbon neutral goal, and countries like Canada that put a price on carbon to meet their Paris Agreement, and the fact that we have more jobs in the solar energy industry than we do in the fossil fuel industry across the U.S. Using our voices to advocate for change and to imbue a sense of collective efficacy, which is a very social science-y term, but it means the idea that we understand that we together can make a difference. That is what we're lacking. We just don't feel like we can make a difference. But by talking about it, that is the key first step to understanding that we actually can make a difference and there can be system-wide change. This is great, Catherine. And to pull it, there are several things I think we we'll want to follow up on. But one of them, you mentioned the way the impact is on those who are the, the system now that has many people in poverty, you know, climate change is going to affect them more. I'm teaching a refugee course right now this semester. And, uh, you know, increase projections of increased climate refugees, uh, they're called people who are going to be become refugees because, you know, of rising water levels, other uh, impacts of the environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do you see as the impact of how climate is climate is going to imp- impact potentially those who are, are in poverty more than those who aren't in the coming years? Well, you know, the sustainable development goals of the United Nation, and they're incredibly basic. Uh, no poverty, no hunger, access to clean water, basic health care, education, And then down at number 13, out of 17, they have climate action. But honestly, I don't think that climate action should even be on that list because the only reason we care about it is because it affects everything else. It affects poverty and hunger 
It affects access to and the quality of clean water. It affects the safety and security of our homes and the economy. And the refugee crises that we've seen in the last decade, like the Syrian refugee crises, they have the potential to just be the drop in the bucket compared to the crises that could happen as sea level rises, permanently displacing people's homes, as stronger and bigger hurricanes and typhoons and cyclones slam into vulnerable places, Mm -hmm. destroying cities and infrastructure, as crop failures continue to grow around the world. It's estimated that since the 1980s, on average, there's been about $5 billion worth of crop losses per year due to the impacts of a changing climate already in the last 40 years. And most of those losses are happening in poor countries. So if you can't grow food, if there's no water because the rainy season is shifting beyond recognition, if your home or the place where you live is destroyed by a stronger coastal storm, what are you going to do? You would rather stay where you're from, but if you literally cannot feed your family or keep them safe, you have to move. And we're seeing that today through Central America, moving north into North America. We're seeing a migration through Southeast Asia, We're already seeing the tip of the iceberg, but of course, the tip of the iceberg is just a little bit of what could be coming if we don't act now. And and Catherine, a couple of times as you've been sharing with us, you've mentioned now uh, the kind of the connection between climate change and the increased severity of some major storms like hurricanes. Can, Can you help us understand what that connection is and what it isn't? Yes. So what's happening, first of all, is that by digging up and burning fossil fuels, we are producing massive amounts of a heat-trapping gas called carbon dioxide. It also comes from deforestation, and we produce other heat-trapping gases like methane from animal agriculture. 90% of it comes out the front end of the cow and 10% out the back, (laughs) um, as well as from the decomposition of waste, like wastewater facilities and landfills. When organic material decays, it produces these heat-trapping gases. Well, we've got, you know, almost 8 billion people on the planet today, and the majority of our society is run by fossil fuels. Now, That is starting to change. Around the world, 20% of our energy is already renewable. And last year was a record year for renewable energy. I think somewhere upwards of 90% of the new electricity installed around the world, much of it in places that didn't have access to electricity before, was clean renewable energy, which is amazing. But this is why climate is changing, is because we're producing all these heat-trapping gases. So what they do, just like a blanket would if, you know, if somebody snuck into your room at night and put an extra blanket on you and you'd start to heat up Mm -hmm. and you'd be like, why did you do that? It's too hot. (laughs) In the same way, the earth is getting warmer and that is triggering a cascade of impacts. Some of the biggest impacts that we're seeing are not the long-term impacts of long-term increases in average temperature or long-term increases in sea level. The oceans are rising because warmer water takes up more space, as well as because land-based ice like Greenland and Antarctica are melting. But today, some of the biggest impacts we're seeing are from the way that a warmer world is weighting the or loading the weather dice against us. Another way to think about it is like a baseball player on steroids. So you have a baseball player who can always hit the ball pretty well. You have dice where you always have a chance of rolling a double six. You have a world where you've always had hurricanes, heat waves, droughts, and floods, and wildfires. But then you're loading the dice or you're giving that baseball player steroids. And what you're starting to see is a lot bigger and a lot stronger, a lot more intense, and a lot more damaging events. 
So just to give you a couple of examples, and if anybody's interested in more, the National Climate Assessment is a really good source for this information. We're seeing that heat waves are getting more frequent and stronger and longer, and those affect people's health directly, as well as our crops and our air quality and our energy demand and a lot of other things. We're seeing that warmer air holds more water vapor. So when a storm comes along today, there's a lot more water vapor for that storm to sweep up and dump on us than there would have been 50 or 100 years ago. So we've seen significant increases in heavy rainfall around the world and right here in the U.S. too. In fact, in some areas of Minnesota, their home insurance for flood has increased by 300% in the last 30 years. And back about 10 years ago, uh, farmers insurance sued the city of Chicago in Cook County because it said that they weren't adequately preparing for the impacts of a changing climate on flood risk, and they were leaving the insurance companies holding the bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then you've got hurricanes, which are not becoming more frequent because temperature doesn't affect whether they form or not. But once they've formed, they are getting a lot bigger and stronger because they get all their energy from warm ocean water, and the oceans are warming too. So we're seeing hurricanes that are a lot more damaging. In fact, it's estimated that 40% of the rain that fell during Hurricane Harvey three years ago, which was a very damaging hurricane that hit the city of Houston, 40% of that rain, it's estimated, would not have occurred if the same hurricane had happened 100 years ago. It's just because it was so much bigger and so much stronger in a warmer world. And then I can't end without wildfires because we've always had wildfires. But once those wildfires get going... And most of the wildfires in the lower 48 states are the result of human ignition, not arson, just accidental ignition, like somebody having something plugged in in their shed or somebody dumping a load of burning trash into the brush or uh, somebody letting off fireworks at their gender reveal party. (laughs) Um, but, But once that fire gets started, the brush and the soil is so much drier today than it would have been 25, 50, 100 years ago that wildfires are burning much more area, more than double the area is now being burned by wildfires because of climate change than would naturally be occurring here in the US, in Australia, in Alaska, in Canada, and in many other places around the world. Well, Catherine, you know, one of the things that I have so appreciated about you as an individual is the way that you've sought to bridge faith and science in the public square. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years as I followed your career and, you know, read your book, Climate for Change, you know, been able to watch some of your uh, global weirdening um, episodes with PBS and some of these other great resources that you've developed. I've noticed that you're very open talking about your faith and, you know, about what it's like to be a scientist. And also you've mentioned being a Canadian more than a time or two, I think, that I've uh, listened or heard. And, And so... It seems like you really approach this work from such a um, authentic place of who you are and bring that into the way you communicate with others. So I'd be curious to know, maybe have there been any experiences that you've had in your life that have really helped kind of shape the way you approach this work? Yes, absolutely. So I am Canadian, born in Toronto. And when I was nine years old, uh, my dad packed the family up and we all moved down to Colombia in South America. Uh, we moved down there in the 80s at the height of the drug war. So Pablo Escobar was the was the person who was in Cali, the city where we lived. And you had to keep your ear to the ground and know when to not go to certain grocery stores or neighborhoods in case something might wow. happen. 
Um, and so it was a really interesting experience in many ways. As a child, I'm sure I probably didn't experience the full, uh, the full risks of living there at that time. But what I did see firsthand through the church that we attended that had a very varied population um, in terms of socioeconomic status from you know lower middle class to really living well below the poverty line, I saw what it looked like to grow up in a house that was made of cardboard boxes and mud bricks, to have you know six siblings and no parents and everybody went to work. And at the end of the month, you spent half of what you earned on bricks and half on food. And when you built a single room for your six-member family, you invited everybody you knew to celebrate that you actually had a room that you could live in. Um, when landslides happened and floods, when heavy rainfall and drought occurred, I saw firsthand how that affected people who had no insurance. They had no bank account to bail them out. They had no social systems. There was no FEMA to show up when disaster struck, though the military police would eventually show up more to carry the bodies out than anything. Mm. Um, the disasters that you, that you can witness firsthand, I think, will leave an impact on you forever. So I went, I returned to Canada for university and I was studying astrophysics. My dad is a science teacher. And so I grew up with the idea that science is the coolest thing you could possibly <laughs> study because it explains how the whole universe works and how God set it all up in the first place. Um, but serendipitously, one of those coincidences that looking back, you realize was no coincidence at all. I was looking around for an extra course to finish my degree before I graduated, and there was a brand new class on climate science over in the geography department. And I thought to myself, well, that looks interesting. Why not take it? Uh, because I'd grown up with the idea that, you know, we have biodiversity loss, we have deforestation, we have air and water pollution, we have climate change. We have these environmental issues that are affecting our world that environmentalists care about and environmentalists are working on and the rest of us wish them well. That's kind of the perspective I had. But taking this class was an absolute shock to me for two reasons. One, I did not realize that climate science was the exact same physics and even astronomy that I'd been learning in my classes. I don't know what I thought it was, but I didn't think it was that. And then the second thing I learned, and this is what really was transformational, was that climate change is not just an environmental issue. It is, as the US military now calls it, it's a threat multiplier. It takes everything we care about, including the most devastating of humanitarian crises, and it makes them worse. It's like a hole in the bucket. So imagine that we have a bucket and we're trying to pour everything we can into this bucket to help alleviate poverty or disease or hunger. And we're putting all of our time and our effort and our money and our prayers and everything we have into this bucket, but there's a hole in the bottom of the bucket and the hole is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So why do we want to patch the hole? Not because we really objectively care about a hole per se. We care about it because we're trying to fill the bucket, and we can't do that with this hole. So that's what I realized climate change is. It's the hole. The only reason we care about it is because it affects everything we already care about today. And if we don't fix it, we're never going to be able to fix anything else that's wrong with this world. 
So that was what really, I think, spoke to me in a profound and powerful way, saying, you you happen to have, again, remarkable coincidence, you happen to have the exact skill set that you need to study this pressing global issue. So I thought to myself at the time, very naively, well, it's so urgent, we'll surely fix it soon. So I'll work on this until we fix it, and then I'll go back to studying galaxies. <laughs> that was a very long time ago. <laughs> Uh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. I'm also thinking I could barely get through the uh, the tension of watching the Netflix series a couple years ago about Cali uh, and Escobar's time. So I can't imagine what it was like to live live through it uh, there. Um, as you mentioned that, and so much information of what you've been talking about, and it's really compelling. What have you learned about how to communicate this with people who are skeptical? So at the beginning of your TED Talk, you say, you know, the, the biggest indicator of where people are going to come out on this issue is political leaning. The science is clear. It's compelling. You know, our faith, our love for neighbors, all that. But what is it if you're talking with someone who's skeptical or advice you have for someone who's talking with someone else? What can actually change people's minds on this issue? Mm-hmm. What can change people's minds is connecting to their hearts rather than their heads. So really connecting heart to heart is the solution. And that is night and day difference from the message we typically hear, which is you are not enough. You are not doing enough. You are not caring enough. You are not good enough. That's the message we hear all the time. And that's not what we believe as Christians. And it's not what's going to help us fix climate change either. Realizing that we already have everything we need, not just for life and godliness, we have everything we need to care about climate change. And frankly, if we take the Bible seriously, we're out at the front of the line demanding action, as so many Christians already are today. So now, Catherine, we like to end with these, kind of we call them the big five better Samaritan questions, just to give you 15, 20 seconds each uh, to answer questions that should take much longer. And we've covered some of these already, but we'll hop through these five five questions because it's interesting to hear sort of the common thread between different people working on important issues like you and on human trafficking with refugees. So uh, first question, what's something that has surprised you in your work? That's a great question. I think something that surprised me initially and will probably surprise many people is that even though dismissive people have the loudest voices on climate change, they're only 7% of the population. 7%. Over 60% of people in the United States today are already worried or concerned about climate change, but they just don't know what they can do about it. And one final question here for you. Uh, What's one thing you think that could make the road safer? We have a special role on this planet, and our role on this planet is not to dominate, pillage, rape, and destroy, and then God will push the eject button and we'll all be out of here. Our God-given role, clear as day, is to abad and to shamar, to care for and to protect, not only for the sake of other living things, but for our own sake as well. That's a great way to close, Catherine. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, the leadership you're giving, the the science that you're sharing, the insights that you you share so well with us. So thank you. We are grateful. And and just as a final question, anything you would like to highlight for listeners? Excited to hear that you have another book coming up soon. Anything else you'd like to highlight for listeners who want to continue to go deeper on what you've talked about with us today? Absolutely. So there is my TED Talk, which you can easily find if you just Google TED and my name. There is a YouTube series that I have that I do with our local PBS station called Global Weirding. 
not warming, weirding. <laughs> and what's really interesting is that we cover a whole range of topics like how do you know this isn't a natural cycle and don't poor countries need fossil fuels? But I said, I also want to do a video on or an episode on what does the Bible say about climate change? Because I keep hearing all these kind of bible sounding myths like, you know, God promised Noah that he would never flood the earth again, so sea level can't be rising. So we did this episode on what does the Bible say about climate change? And much to my surprise, that episode turned out to be the most watched episode. <laughs> Everybody wants the answer to that. Even if they're not Christians, they're curious. But I would just love to close with one really, really important thought. And I feel like this is the biggest thing that I've personally learned over the last 20 years. It's this. To care about climate change, we do not have to be a specific type of person. We only have to be one thing, and we're all that, and that is a human living on planet Earth. Thank you, Catherine. What a great place to finish. Thank you for the hope you've given us. Thank you for the way you are, uh, I think, helping Jamie and me and helping all of us to learn how to do good better. Thank you for having me. I hope you found that conversation with Catherine as helpful as I did. I, I have uh, scientists like Catherine working on this issue, but then also saying, hey, if we do work together on this, in this earth that's finite and with climate change that's real, we can make a difference. So I hope you, like me, can feel like, hey, we can move forward together, uh, taking this seriously, feeling the weight of it, but also feeling hope about how we can keep uh, doing good better when it comes to climate change. Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to the brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better.